this morning, so we're going to be in 1 Peter. I've been looking forward to, to getting back in the uh, New Testament, and as we go through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I encourage you, as, as always in our sermon series, that you would look ahead, read ahead, pray over God's Word, pray for me, pray for each other as we, as we read God's Word and as we study God's Word together and, and hear the preaching of, of God's Word together to prepare our hearts and our minds each week as we gather. For all of our recent visitors who have come during our last sermon series on the, on the church, uh, this, this right here is what we do most of the time. We, we take a book of the Bible from uh, New Testament and then the Old Testament as we, we go through, and, and we preach uh, uh, expositionally, expository preaching through each of these books. And so this is what we do 98% of the time. We preach through uh, a book of the Bible. Now, let's look at 1 Peter. To say the least, and I mean the least, it has been an interesting two years or year. Well, let's go two years, right? Let's round up. Two years. Thankfully for us, we have seen God's kindness and we have seen God's blessing that he has given toward us. He has kept us safe. He has persevered us and preserved us through much uncertainty. He has provided for us and by his grace and by his mercy, he has even grown us. Unfortunately, for others, it has not been the case. There are several congregations who have as well has persevered and have been preserved by God, but it has come at great cost. Even worse, some congregations have faced ongoing persecution and suffering as they dared to defy mandates and edicts by governors, mayors, and health departments. Most of these congregations and pastors, they, they weren't belligerent or they, they weren't rude in their standing up. In fact, many of them were quite accommodating as they could afford to. As the mandates and the requirements came down the pike, they, they did their best to, to meet those requirements in order for them to continue to meet. Some churches even resorted to meeting in their cars and in parking lots and with the windows rolled up in their cars so they still could see somewhat one another but still somewhat gather together. But for many government officials, that was not enough. After constant harassment, despite the generous concessions and often compliance by many churches, with the particular means, these churches had to sue cities and counties and states in order to maintain their right to gather. Thankfully, in many of those cases, as some of y'all probably know, they, they won their lawsuits pretty well, pretty well out. But we have to admit to one another that in that time, it did not come without tremendous stress and pressure upon them 
as well as financial burden. What I'm getting at is, unlike I have ever seen in my life, and I'm sure you would agree, is the persecution of the church. I know these examples that I've given are in the context of the pandemic, but what it shows us is how quickly and easily it is for some government leaders to declare unilaterally that you cannot go to church, that Christianity is declared non-essential. But shopping at Walmart, that's cool. Going to Lowe's, going to strip clubs, going to liquor stores is okay. Even in our own world today, we are growing up and we are seeing an ongoing movement toward a secular society. Even here in Statesboro, we are moving into what is called, actually we're not moving into it, we're there, in a post-Christian society. And when I say post-Christian, I mean that a majority of culture does not share Christian values or Christian ethics, but are secular. They're based upon what they deem to be right. That's why there's this ever-changing morality in our culture. We will continue to unpack what it means to be in a post-Christian culture as we walk through 1 Peter, but the letter that we are about to encounter together for the next coming months was written to churches like ours in somewhat a same kind of time as our own. As we are living now in a post-Christian society, the same sort of attitudes and animosity toward Christians was present toward the original hearers that Peter wrote to who were living in a pre-Christian society. First Peter was written to Christians and churches throughout the region of Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Turkey and several other places. And they had been facing persecution and suffering because of their faith in Christ. And that was the, the clear distinction of whether you would face persecution and animosity and hostility was whether you identified to be in Christ or not. They were facing some harsh persecution. Now, this persecution wasn't universal and it wasn't state-driven like it will be from Rome when Rome comes down pretty hard on Christians and a couple decades later from the writing of this letter. This letter was written around 62 to 63 AD. Just to put it in context, 65 AD was when Nero had a, a crazy party and burnt his house down and blamed it on Jews and Christians, and that's what started a massive persecution toward Christians and, and, and Jews uh, under, under him. The suffering that Peter is addressing is persecution nonetheless, but it is local and sporadic. But it is enough persecution that these churches were facing that it brought such a pressure 
and such a stress on them that Peter had the need, of course we know, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage them. And so as the church began to grow and as the church began to spread throughout the Roman world, hostility began to increase uh, toward Christians because they were different. Because they were different. We live in a society where thankfully we have some legal protections, but these Christians didn't. Some were attacked physically, property destroyed, slandered, slandered against, jobs and money were withheld. They were ostracized from society and from their families uh, to which they could do nothing. They had no one to turn to. There was no lawyers that would take their case or any judges that would hear their case. They were Christians. Who cares? Generally, those who don't know suffering and persecution like to think that persecution is a good thing. Meaning that through persecution, God grows his church. And, and truth, truth be told, that is correct in many ways. There is purification and there's holiness that does happen. And, and the Lord uses it for his glory in his people and does good for the church. But at what end if the persecution never stops? If the persecution doesn't end and if that persecution continues to escalate. Case in point, in the Middle East and North Africa for centuries, that was the epicenter of Christianity. It was the center of Christianity where some of the, the greatest church fathers lived and wrote in that area. And however, as the church began to flourish, it faced that sporadic persecution as those in Asia Minor. And the persecution kept coming. And then the rise of Islam, persecution increased more. First it was, if you're a Christian, you can live here, but you have to pay a tax. You have to pay a tax to live here. You have to pay more taxes when you go shopping. Your sales tax increases. For you to work, you have to pay a tax. To worship, oh, that's really going to cost you. So the burden that Christians were, were bearing for centuries. But around the 7th century, the game changed. And that's when killing began. The question was no longer of, how much am I going to have to pay in tax? But the question is, renounce or die. The killing didn't stop until about 12th century, when there were no more Christians to kill. They either fled or they died. Persecution and suffering puts an extreme pressure on the church, on people who, like any one of us, under this kind of pressure, would be tempted to quit to bail, to crack. So this morning, as we just read the opening greeting, I want you to hear this greeting in that context alone. To them, as it's written to them, and even for the church today. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. From the beginning of this greeting, we see from the get-go that this letter is aptly named and was written by or dictated by Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And despite how some smarty-pants scholars like to doubt that Peter wrote the book because he was an uneducated fisherman, and how could he ever write something so organized and, and thought out, and that someone later wrote this during harsher times of persecuted, then just used Peter's name to bring about or give it some notoriety. Well, those arguments do not make hardly any sense, especially anybody with a good study Bible can realize how ridiculous that is. And we can talk about that later if you so choose. Those arguments don't make sense. Peter wrote these letters. And I love how Peter unashamedly says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because if, if you know the Bible, then you know that Peter is truly saying something there. And he's admitting something there. Peter knew Jesus. Peter fellowshiped with Jesus. Peter heard Jesus teach. He heard the words that we read. He heard with his own ears. He heard Jesus preach. He saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus walk on water. He walked on water with Jesus until he looked down and started, faint or started falling, and Jesus lifted him up. Peter saw Jesus heal the lame and the sick. He saw Jesus raise the dead. He saw Jesus forgive sinners and transform lives. Peter saw Jesus die. Peter saw Jesus dead and put in a tomb. Peter saw and then heard and he touched the resurrected Savior. And Peter saw Jesus ascending into heaven. Peter heard angels say to him, what are you looking up there for? But Peter also tried to tell Jesus that he was wrong about his coming death. Peter tried to tell Jesus, I will be with you no matter what comes your way, Jesus. I got my sword and I'm ready. Nothing's going to happen to you as long as I'm around. But instead, Jesus told him that he was going to deny him three times. And he did. Peter was restored, though, by Jesus. After denying him, he was restored. And Peter went on to preach the gospel faithfully. Peter was persecuted by the Jews. Peter was beaten by the Jews. Peter was beaten for preaching 
the preaching the gospel, and he counted it as joy. He counted it as good. He counted it as a privilege. Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles. And now Peter, an old man, and honestly, he is about to die himself. He writes this letter to encourage the church and these churches by reminding them the true grace of God that will sustain them through suffering and point them to a future hope. So right out of the gate, Peter gets right into it in these first two verses. This morning in them, I want you to see five ways in this, that how this letter is not only going to be encouraging and building up for them, but also encouraging and being built up, building us up as well in preparation for suffering and for persecution. Those five points are position, place, purpose, price, and promise. All P's. If you can't remember one, just come up with something from a P word and might be right. First point this morning is position. I don't mean position as in a geographical location, but I mean position or status in which someone stands. If someone is on trial for a crime that they were accused of, their position is a defendant. They are the defendant, and according to our justice system, as a defendant, their position is also as innocent until proven guilty. The burden of proof of guilt is on the prosecutors to prove to a jury that this person is not just innocent, or is not innocent, but is guilty. A position also could be in uh, who you are and what you do. My position is as a pastor, an elder here at Sovereign Grace Church. I'm also a husband and father. And you have a position in your family in your job, in what you do, and who you are. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is calling on all of those who are in a very distinct position. And he's calling them to listen. He addresses them saying, to those who are elect. Now, brothers and sisters and my friends, this is no mere dear John or dear Sue. This is no mere greetings. It's not some throwaway term of affection, but this is meant to be a description of a deep, rich, theological identity to a particular people of God that he has chosen. And this is the position before the Lord that these persecuted saints stand. The elect. Let's unpack it for a moment. The fir first, the method of election is by God's sovereign choice. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him 
in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He goes right into doxology there. This means that God chose. God chose who would believe so he undeservedly saved sinners in spite of their sin and who would persist in rebellion and so deservedly perish because of their sin. God's election, and as Ephesians 1 says, choosing or predestined unto adoption is unconditional, meaning that God's selection of those whom he would save was not based upon some fact or some feature of the individual that he had chosen. God does not elect persons based upon his advanced foreknowledge. Because if that was the case, then his election would be conditional. But rather, it's unconditional election. God's own self-determining to elect or save according to his own good pleasure. I mean, it's right there in Ephesians. For his own good pleasure and will, without respect, for the individual's qualities. That means we have nothing to boast in except Christ and the cross. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him, God the Father, the Lord, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The method of our election is by God's sovereign choice. Second, the time of God's electing was before the foundation of the world. We read that there in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And this is very important because this is the, the time frame, right? He gives us even a, a time frame. We may not be able to comprehend it, but it is a time frame that shows us that this election is unconditional. It's contra-conditional as well. It's contrary to our condition. And simply put, his sovereign choice alone, according to his will, his purpose, and for his glory. Third, the object of God's sovereign, unconditional election is his elect. And the elect are those who are in Christ. They are people. They are individuals who are being brought into the body of Christ, united in Christ. Each individual saved Man, woman, boy, or girl who was loved and favored by God before the creation of the world so that God chose them from just condemnation and wrath to be made holy and to be made blameless like his son. Romans 8.29. From the very beginning, it has always been God's intention, desire, and plan to save his people, his elect, by his sovereign grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we did not read Ezekiel 16 by some mere accident. We read Ezekiel 16 this morning because it shows how God had transforms and how God takes a undeserved, naked, dirty, undesirable people and he makes them his own. 
and that he does the work. To understand unconditional election and to under, is to understand salvation history and the gospel. To look away from it is to undercut God's work of salvation's eternity's past. And I think as Peter's point here is to miss the deep well of joy of God's immense electing grace. If you are a Christian, then this is deep and rich theological term, elect, is no mere greeting, but it is a call for you as it was a call for them, not just to listen, but to remember the position that you hold and that they hold by grace before God. And the position by which we hold before the world, God's elect. How in the world do you hold fast to Christ during immense persecution and pressure and suffering? You hold on to the eternal truth of your position in Christ that by grace alone you are of the elect. What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And all God's people say, Amen. yes. You see, when you are reminded of your position, the doctrine of divine election as it does for us and as it reminds these Christians at a very specific time in Asia Minor, Asia Minor and then for all churches, for all eternity, that your suffering and your persecution, guess what? It's not meaningless. It's not for nothing. And it doesn't say to, the, to us that God has forgotten about you. It doesn't say that. The doctrine of divine election says that God has all things working out for his glory, even suffering, even persecution. God has not forgotten about you in your pain and in your loss. And we can stand firm in his grace because of God. Because he who did not spare his own son, he has chosen you and he will hardly let you go now. Hardly. Remember your position if you are in Christ. The second point this morning is to understand our place. Peter says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, We've already said that Peter wrote this letter to Christians uh, in, in churches that were dispersed around the, the region, region of Asia, Asia Minor, roughly the size of 
southwest Texas all the way, uh, the southwest from Texas all the way to California. So a fairly big size. So roughly up to hundreds and thousands of Christians will receive this letter in those regions. These are the, the places, the lists there. These are the real places where these Christians lived. This is where they were from. This is their homes. This is their cities. This is their regions. This is where they were born and where they grew up. And now, because of Christ and their identity in Christ, they are now living as exiles in their own home. We live here. We are from here. A lot of us, not me, Grew up here, but none of us belong here. The word exile is used very strategically. It could also mean stranger. The NASB, the New American Standard, uses the word alien. Aliens. In fact, Peter goes on to call his hearers, exiles, and sojourners three more times. Because he does that because he wants to get through to them. That these places may be your home. This may be where you grew up and where you were born, but this isn't where you belong. Because in Christ, we never fully belong in this world, even if this is our hometown. There will never be a truer, a true peace or harmony that we will have with this world. As Christians, we are strangers and we are aliens and sojourners. And when we live according to how God has called us and how God has made us, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, talk about that in a few minutes, then we are going to be different when we live according to his word. We worship one God. We worship the Son of God. And we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They worship false gods. They worship themselves and idols or worship no gods at all. We live and we live under the authority of God's revealed word. And that gives us an objective truth and standards by which we live and our lives for his glory. God's word tells us how to live. But they live according to their own personal moral standards, uh, what makes them feel good. And by the way, where it leads them. Never any joy, never any happiness continued turmoil and blaming. There's no happiness there. The very reason why these Christians were being persecuted in Asia Minor is because they were strange. They were in Christ and they were being shaped by Christ and by his word and therefore they were seen as a threat to the world's worldview, to their culture, to their standards. 
as our society becomes more and more secular, standing on their own understanding, and as we stand upon the rock of Christ, the word of God, then our strangeness will stand out as a threat more and more. Are we not seeing that today? Not just today, right? We've been seeing it for a while now. Like when Noah looked like a weirdo building a boat in the desert, telling people that it was going to rain. We're that strange. But just because we are in this place as elect exiles, brothers and sisters, we do not shrink back. We do not retreat, but rather we engage our culture with the gospel. We make the invisible visible. The invisible church visible. We call sinners to faith and repentance in Christ. We continue to proclaim the gospel. But we cannot forget that we are exiles. And we will never truly be home until he comes back. So do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel helpless? Do you ever feel like there's no hope? There's no turning things around? Do you ever feel confused? Even in a place that you call home. That's what it means to be an exile. That's what it feels like to be an exile when you say, I don't even recognize this place anymore. That's what it means to be in exile where this morning you could be exhilarated and joyful by singing the glory of Christ and hearing his word and fellowshipping with one another, and then you can go home, and by the time you go to bed, you can be sad and disappointed. That's being in an exile in this world. Our place is as elect exiles in Statesboro, in Georgia, and in the United States. This may be our home, but if you are in Christ, then we do not belong. And that puts in context a lot of that tension we feel in our hearts and in our lives these days. The third point this morning is that we should understand our purpose. Verse 2, Peter tells us how he can say these things about the Christian, about Christians. How he can say that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he says there in verse 2, he says, according, right? So according, this is, this is how you are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So again, he is digging deep for us because, listen, when you are facing persecution, when you are facing uh, the potential suffering and loss, the plundering of your goods, the loss of your job, listen, the last thing you need is pleasantries. The last thing you need is stupid Christian cliches that aren't even Christian. The last thing you need is coffee cup sayings. It's the last thing you need. Funeral homes and hospitals are filled with stupid sayings. Facebook is filled with stupid sayings. 
when people are suffering, they hear dumb things. Stop it. I'm not speaking to you directly. We need truth. We need depth. We need depth. I mean, we need something deep. What else are you going to hold on to? Oh, I could go on. That's the kind, we need the kind of depth where Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the kind of depth, brothers and sisters, that we cling on to, that we hold on fast to, and we don't let go. Because what he's saying here is that nothing befalls you that's outside of the sovereign hand of God. But look what else he says. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Those who are of the elect in Christ, according to the foreknowledge of God, he has given us his Holy Spirit for our sanctification. Back to Ephesians 1, 13, says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And as Romans 8 and Galatians tells us, he's declaring in us, Abba, Father. That we are sons of adoption. The word sanctification means to be set apart for, or dedicated to, or to be made holy. We, we, like, we usually use the word sanctification as the, as the progressive work of the Spirit to conform Christians into the image of Christ. However, here, the way that Peter is, is using it is he is pointing to salvation, that, that initial point of salvation, that by God's grace, according to his foreknowledge, they have been dedicated for something. They have been set apart for something. They are being made holy by the by being made holy by the holy spirit again we are putting more weight on a time in our life that is very difficult we're putting more uh, uh, glorious truths that holds us down on the rock of christ it's like putting also a, putting up like sandbags we're putting up more sandbags to hold back the flood the spirit is at work regeneration and he is at work in our obedience to Christ you see that's the last part there right that he says there the sanctification of the of the Holy Spirit and for the obedience to Christ again back to Ephesians 1 4 we're chosen before the foundation of the world and saved so that we would be holy and blameless before him a very familiar passage that's also helpful to us. Again, Ephesians. Man, there's like a theme here. Ephesians. Before by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result, result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, 
for obedience, which God has prepared beforehand. Can you see all how this, that we should walk in them? A little Psalm 1 language there. That we would walk in them, that God has prepared before sovereign, predestined, elected, chosen, to be created in Christ for good works. We certainly need to highlight on the unmerited grace of God in which none of us do anything in taking a step forward in our salvation. There is no meeting God halfway or even just a millimeter, but it is all by his grace in which we respond with faith and repentance. But as it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for good works, for obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ is obedience to his word. Obedience to Christ is not however and whatever you want to just make up. Obedience to Christ is his word. Jesus said, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed to you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you see the links, the ongoing links between our election, God's sovereign choice, the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, and then our obedience? Obedience bears the fruit of righteousness. The purpose as we live in exile, as we are elect and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the point and purpose is to be obedient to Christ. Do not miss that part, obedience. Those who follow Christ and suffer persecution, do not miss that part, that we're still called to obedience. And in our obedience, we are obedient and remain Obedient to our Savior, Jesus Christ, according to his word. Our purpose is to walk in obedience even as exiles. There's no excuse. There's no excuse to rebel. There's no excuse to, to give in to sin. But to remain obedient. Number four, we must understand the price that was paid for that sanctification. We are all sinners, and before a holy God, each sinner must be justified. We could not come with anything of our own. We have no righteousness of our own. We were following the course of this world, our flesh, and by nature, we are children of wrath, and each of us is deserving a sentence of eternal death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Love Ephesians 2. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. So to, to save the elect, God sent his son by his sacrificial death he would accomplish the salvation for sinners, the justification that was required to make us right before God. If he, Romans chapter 3, that God would be the just and the justifier. And so in this very short phrase that Peter uses, he says, for the sprinkling with his blood. Certainly a point back to the imagery of the Old Testament, but what he's talking about is he is talking about salvation. He is talking about the atonement by the blood of Christ that any one of us who are, who, who, who are saved, we have been saved only through the blood of Christ. Our sins, the price was paid by Christ. What was it this week we saw on our phones this morning? If you keep the U.S. calendar, it said it was Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. What a waste of a day for many. Because the Day of Atonement was... 2,000-ish years ago, when the Son of God was stricken for my sin and for your sin and the sin of the elect. His blood sprinkled, and it cleansed every sin. We're not just partially clean. You're not just somewhat clean, but he has made us righteous before a holy God because he bore the wrath of God. The perfect, sinless Son of God bore the wrath of God so that sinners who are stained and filthy and broken and undeserved can become the righteousness of God. It cost the Son of God his life in which he offered up willingly as a ransom for many. The price was paid and the price that was paid was finished. And he uses this little phrase here because it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of this, this glorious news, not just to make us feel bad because we're sinners and this is what he had to do in order to save us because we're just so bad, but it is to incite a joy and a love for him so that when suffering and persecution comes our way, that you are ready for it. You're ready for it because you're on this foundation of God's sovereign election and providence and love and foreknowledge, but his grace and his mercy that through his son, you are now made righteous so that no matter what comes your way, no matter what comes your way, the price and those paid for your position, the price was paid for your position and a purpose for that price. And it fars outweighs the light momentary affliction that we may face now. Because it is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. Keep the price close. Stay humble. 
by the work of Christ. And let it give you joy as you remain steadfast. And lastly, number five, we must understand the promise that is set before us. Peter says in almost a benediction kind of way at the beginning of his letter and in his greeting, this glorious phrase of blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. There is certainly a lot that we can be, we could say about grace and peace. We've said quite a bit about grace. But I believe that it was truly a heartfelt blessing that Peter was bestowing upon his readers. He want that he was wanting them and all of those who read this to be truly blessed by God's grace and that we would have peace and blessing. Because Peter was a man who truly understood grace. Jesus told him he would deny him, and he did. Peter denied him. At the, mo or at the most crucial moment of all of history, Peter failed. Peter failed, and he failed miserably. He knew he deserved not to be forgiven. He knew that he should be treated like a deserter. But that's not what Peter received, was it? Peter received grace. Peter received mercy and forgiveness to come back to the fold. And that radically changed him. So moving that Peter would continue in faithfulness to the end of his life. What grace did for him and what grace does for us, brothers and sisters, is that no matter what comes our way, that in Christ we could have peace. That we could have peace. You see, for us, this is the kind of promise and blessing that we need multiplied on us daily. To remember his grace and to remember what gives us truly peace, and to have that multiplied throughout the day. Because I change, and I ebb and flow, but he does not. That his grace is sufficient, and that his peace is everlasting, no matter what we may face. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Grace and peace. Beloved, we may be living in an increasingly hostile world toward Christians and Christianity. We will continue to be marginalized. You may face ultimatums that challenge your Christian beliefs and conscience. But remember, elect exiles as you are, regardless of what may come your way, we remain strong, standing on the grace of God who chose us before the foundation of the world. And he has called us by his Holy Spirit to be in Christ. Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? You see, these truths 
are about Christians and for Christians. Peter is writing to Christians, and if you are not in Christ, then you need Christ. You need the forgiveness of Christ. And even today, trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, turning from your sin, you could become a Christian today. And if the Lord may be calling you this morning, I encourage you to speak to someone else this morning. Speak to me. Speak to Brother Kenny, another elder, or someone else that could encourage you and to share Christ and the gospel with you and help you to understand more. We do not know what is before us. We do not know what we will face. But this is what we do know. We know these truths that we have talked about today. We know the grace of God. We know the mercy of God. We have his word, his truth. The truths that we have spoke this morning, they are still true for us. I pray that you will daily embrace them. And I pray as Peter, that may the grace and peace be multiplied to you all, always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, O oh God, for your drawing, for calling us unto salvation. We thank you for the regenerating work of the, of the Holy Spirit to make us new and whole and righteous in Christ. We thank you, O oh God, that even things that we do not understand, the mysteries of our salvation that we can believe and we can trust. Lord, help us each day. And those who may be suffering, those who may be in pain, those who may face persecution this year, in the coming weeks or months or years to come, whatever it may be, Lord, would you help us to trust in these promises? And would you give us grace? And would you give us peace? Continue to show us how sufficient your grace is to us and that we can endure in all things. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.